We have been going through the first book of Samuel, and today we are on chapter 21 and in the beginning of chapter 22. You can always find uh, the passage that we'll be going through in your bulletin as well. So we'll be going from chapter 21 all the way to chapter 22, verse 5, but at this time we'll be reading the first nine verses and so if you would please turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 21, verses 1 through 9. And if you have a pew Bible, you can find it in front of you. If you have one, you can turn to page 228. When you have found it, please rise for the reading of God's word. Hear now the word of the Lord. Then David came to Nob, to Ahimelech the priest. And Ahimelech came to meet David trembling and said to him, Why are you alone and no one with you? And David said to Ahimelech the priest, The king has charged me with a matter and said to me, Let no one know anything of the matter about which I send you and with which I have charged you. I have made an appointment with the young men for such and such a place. Now then, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread or whatever is here. And the priest answered David, I have no common bread on hand, but there is holy bread, if the young men have kept themselves from women. And David answered the priest, Truly women have been kept from us, as always when I go on an expedition. The vessels of the young men are holy, even when it is an ordinary journey. How much more today will their vessels be holy? So the priest gave him the holy bread, for there was no bread there but the bread of the presence which is removed from before the Lord to be replaced by hot bread on the day it is taken away. Now a certain man of the servants of Saul was there that day detained before the Lord. His name was Doeg the Edomite, the chief of Saul's herdsmen. Then David said to Himelech, Then have you not here a spear or a sword at hand? For I have brought neither my sword nor my weapons with me because the king's business required haste. And the priest said, The sword of Goliath, the Philistine, whom you struck down in the valley of Elah, behold, it is here wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If you will take that, take it, for there is none but that here. And David said, There is none like that. Give it to me. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So in this section of 1 Samuel, we see David enter desperate times. In fact, there are three specific scenes that David goes through. And as you see these scenes one by one, each scene is seemingly more desperate than the last. You know, David is God's chosen servant. Why would God let his servant go through such desperate times? You know, if you believe in God, shouldn't life be easier? Shouldn't life be more blessed, so to speak? You know, it's ironic that a few weeks ago on our podcast, we have a separate podcast that Sam and I do. And Sam asked me if I went through any difficulties this year so far on the podcast. And I told him that it was, it's only been six months, because it was June when he asked me. It was just a week or two, I kid you not. Just a week or two after he asks, asks me, uh, Elizabeth, our newborn of five weeks, comes down with a fever. 
so she's 100% now, but that was a very difficult time for me. And yes, I do blame Sam for that because he's a jinx. Uh, but the point is that we all go through desperate times. We all go through desperate times. And some of us are actually going through desperate times right now. And I think the first thing to note from the passage here is that the servant of God is not exempt from those times. In fact, we might be able to additionally infer that David may have been going through these desperate times precisely because he was chosen by God. How about that? So let's go through these three separate scenarios that David is going through. And the first place we are taken to is to the city of Nob. And so the first scenario is desperation at Nob. You know, Nob was a sanctuary site at the time. It housed many priests. It was located maybe a mile and a half northeast of Jerusalem and one and a half miles southeast of Gibeah. That's where Saul is from, by the way. Gibeah is where his entire family is from. And remember, David is running away from Saul. And so while we don't know exactly why David went to Nob, I would imagine it may have seemed to be a safer choice than the other two cities that surrounded it. But when David gets to Nob, Ahimelech, one of the more prominent priests in Nob, would come out to meet him. And when he came out, it says he came out to meet him trembling. This should give us a hint that Ahimelech may have known more than you might think, or at least more than he let out. In the very least, he knew that something was off. And if he was suspicious, then I don't think if he was just suspicious, like, oh, there's David, it's a little weird that he's here. If he was just a little suspicious of David being there, I don't think he would go out to him trembling. There's something about this, and Ahimelech has caught on to it. And he asks David two questions. It sounds like one, but it's two in the Hebrew. And that's why David gives two separate answers. And the questions are, why are you alone and where is everyone else? Why are you alone and where is everyone else? And here's David's answer. Now, after hearing David, David's answer, you tell me, knowing from what we just went over in verse 1, how credible David's story seems. This is his first answer. Number one, he is on a top-secret, highly sensitive government mission. That is why he is traveling alone. And number two, he isn't actually alone because he is meeting his men somewhere or sometime beyond this place. So which is it? If someone gave you those answers, which is it? Are you alone because you are on a top secret mission? Or are you meeting people later, which then wouldn't be so top secret a mission because all these people would know? And because of these things, David says, I need food and I need weapons. He was in such a rush because the mission wasn't only top secret, it was incredibly urgent. So he needs food, he needs weapons. Now there will inevitably be some folk here that will see this story, 
see David's response to Ahimelech and say, David must have sinned here because this is obviously a lie, isn't it? And not only is he lying, he's lying to a priest of the Almighty. He's lying to a priest of God. But if we look in the Bible, the Bible doesn't make any mention of whether David sinned here by lying. In fact, in fact, Jesus uses this particular story in his explanation of him being the Lord of the Sabbath. And we see this in the Synoptic Gospels. So Jesus uses the story in the Gospels to say he's the Lord of the Sabbath. So did Jesus then endorse a liar? Obviously, the answer is no, but the narrative doesn't mention whether or not David was sinning by saying what he did. And I just want to bring you to two quick points on this matter, okay? If you're wondering, is David a liar and if Jesus endorsed lying? And number one is, interestingly enough, the name of the priest is Ahimelech. Melech means king. Uh, Ahi means brother, so it means brother of the king. The king, the quote-unquote king that David could be referring to, then could be then the true divine king. After all, even Jonathan knew that it was the Lord, it was Yahweh that sent David on this mission in the last chapter that we went over. In chapter 20, verse 22, Jonathan would say, But if I say to the youth, Look, the arrows are beyond you, then go, for Yahweh has sent you away. So, thinking of these things, it could have very well, it could have been a wink and a nod type of moment. David could have been giving this story to give Ahimelech a way out. It gives him plausible deniability if Saul should ever come knocking down on the door of the city of Nob. And as we see in verse 7, this very well could be the case because Doeg the Edomite, the chief of Saul's herdsmen, is there. He's going to play a bigger part next week, a very sinister part next week. But Doeg is there. And so David is having this conversation. That could be one point. Another point is, here's number two, and I think this is more important. If our sustenance depended on us not sinning, if our daily bread depended on us not sinning, we would all go hungry. Even if God were to take everything I have away from me, everything I have, I would not be able to say anything against the righteousness of his decisions. In fact, just the fact that we could all eat, knowing what kind of sinners we are, that we could have families that we love and company that we enjoy, food to fill our bellies, drink to satisfy our thirst, it's because of this one simple fact. It's because of mercy. And this is the story that Jesus mentions when he talks about him being the Lord of the Sabbath. Sabbath rest is God's mercy. However, the Bible doesn't condemn or laud David for his conduct. It's just reporting it here in this section. And that's why we cannot miss 
the point. Why is this being written here if it's not referring to or pointing to the morality of David's conduct? It's because there is a different question that's being answered here. David needs sustenance. Who is sustaining him? When David asks for food, Ahimelech says there is only the bread of presence. And in Leviticus chapter 24, only priests were ordinarily allowed to eat of this bread. Every Sabbath, you would have 12 fresh loaves placed on the north side of the tabernacle. And the day before, they would replace that bread. And so the priest would get to eat that bread. We have a similar kind of tradition here where whatever bread is left over from the communion, I get to take home and I get to eat. Of course, uh, bread is now the enemy, and so carbs are the enemy. So, I mean, um, not many people eat the bread, and so sometimes it goes to waste. However, back in those days, bread was very precious. Uh, I, was, I was reading some kind of online poll, and they say if there was one food that you could eat and have zero consequences, what would it be? And the vast majority of the answer was bread. And I, I agree with that poll. Yes, bread, please. But there are, there are very dire consequences just to eating bread all day. But David needed sustenance, and bread was his sustenance. And so the holy bread of the priests became David's daily bread. Not only that, when David asks if there are any weapons, Ahimelech tells them that this is the place where they stored Goliath's sword. And if you remember, Goliath's armor, his weaponry, were not only a Philistine make, Philistine technology was superior technology. Goliath was the champion of the Philistines, so his weaponry would have been superior quality to even that. And here in this scene, David is hard-pressed and desperate, but he finds sustenance and provision. Let's go on to the next section. The next section is desperation at Gath. Desperation at Gath. First we had the desperation at Nob, and here is the desperation at Gath. David, after being refreshed and now equipped, he decides to go to Gath. Gath is where Achish is. But more significantly, where did we see the city of Gath before? Gath, if you remember, is where Goliath was from. Remember, it says Goliath of Gath. That's who David killed. He felled with a stone in a sling. And so you might be wondering, what would possess anyone to go to a place where you had killed their champion. Why would you ever think that you could even find sanctuary in this place? But David shows up to the town where he killed their champion, and not only that, he brings that sword with him. I mean, what did he think that the people in the city would think of him? What did he think that the widows of the city The men that were killed in the battle after Goliath fell by David and the Israelites, what would these widows think of David being there? And I think when we read this, we read the desperation at Gath, I think it really shows how desperate David 
was. What kind of deep desperation. This is real desperation that David was in. Because when you are desperate, you don't have any time to think. You don't have time to reason. You don't have time to think. You, sometimes you just have to move. And you might just move to the place or the first place that comes to mind. Oh, I have Goliath's sword. He's from Gath. Let's go to Gath. So David goes to the king of Gath, Achish, and his advisors remember David well. They remember him well enough that they remember the song that the Israelites sang about David. Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. When David hears this, he is very much afraid, and rightfully so. You don't remember what an enemy nation sang about their hero in a neutral manner. It looks like David was taken into their custody in one form or another because it says in verse 13 that he was in his or he was in their hands. And so David then turns to acting. He pretends to be insane. He starts marking the doors. He lets spit run down his beard. Uh, when I am in really deep thought, Sometimes I leave my mouth open, and sometimes saliva would run down my chin. Whenever my wife would see this, she would recoil in revulsion. Because refined people don't do this. Refined people don't let spittle run down their chin or their beard. And I like to say that I may have been acting, but David definitely was acting. Akish, like my wife, who saw this, was disgusted. He didn't even want to detain David. He's like, get him out of here. I have enough crazy people to deal with. And here, again, after reading this portion, one might ask, what's the point? What's the point? Why did David have to go through this humiliation, this desperation? But according to the headings of both Psalm 34 and 56, both of these Psalms were inspired by this scene here in Gath. We have Psalm 34 and 56 because of this place and time in Gath. If you don't know Psalm 34, you might be familiar with this verse. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. That's Psalm 34. That's from Gath. Or in Psalm 56 where David says, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? This verse is also quoted by the author of Hebrews in chapter 13, where he says, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? He's saying the people of God ought to be confidently saying this. So we know from these two Psalms, that David just didn't consider himself lucky for escaping Achish. What David realized was that God was for him. In times of desperation, what was the fruit of David's trials? Well, we could just read his own words in Psalm 34. At the end, verse 17 to 22, this is what David writes. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted. He saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. 
He keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. We too then, in times of desperation, ought to remember that as God's people, we don't look for luck, but we look to the promise that those who trust in God will be delivered. Here's a third scenario. Desperation in Adullam or Adullam. David escapes to a cave near Adullam, about 12 miles east of Gath. And so when his family finds out, they all, his entire family goes out to David. Why? Probably because Saul is a vindictive guy. They thought Saul to be vindictive and vicious, and if they did, they would be right. But not only his family, but we see in verse 2 all sorts of vagrants, ne'er-do-wells, good-for-nothings. They would all come to him. 400 of these folk now look to David as their commander. You know, if you want to start an army, this is not the recipe. However, David gets 400 of these people. But David's primary concern here was for his parents. And I really like this. We already know that they were really all, or already advanced in years from the previous chapters. In, seven, in chapter 17, when he's introduced, it says um, Jesse was already advanced in years. And if David were to ever fight, his parents wouldn't make it. They would not be able to endure. So David does this to protect and honor the life of his parents. I think that's a truly commendable thing to do. Uh, I recently had a conversation with a friend. Uh, he's not from uh, the U.S., but he is a godly man. And he asked me why I wanted kids and why I had a kid. You know, a pastor or a missionary or whoever, an evangelist, uh, a person of God, that life is extremely busy. You know, you don't have a lot of time or resources. Uh, and if you want to flourish, you need to use those scarce resources exceedingly well. We both knew this when we were talking. And when he asked me the question, I'm sure he had all the statistics of how children add wealth to you in a quantifiable capacity. In every quantifiable capacity, children add wealth to your life. I'm sure he knew the statistics, but I didn't say that. Instead, uh, what came to mind, and I told him, was that I wanted kids because of the fifth commandment. I wanted kids because I wanted to honor my father and mother. And when I said that, he immediately leaned back at his chair, and he says, wow, that's good. And that was the end of the conversation. That was the end of that subject. He just said, wow, that's good. The point is that obedience led to concern for David, which led to action. There is a lesson in the middle of this third scene, and that is that obedience and action are always linked. And so this time, 
David goes to another king. This time he goes to a king in Moab to ask if he could take care of his elderly parents until he finds out what God will do for him in verse 3. And probably much to his relief, the Moab king agrees. He says, yes, I will take care of your parents. Why is this significant? Well, if you're doing a one-year Bible reading or you're doing some kind of Bible reading program, right before 1 Samuel is the book of Ruth. And you would have remembered that Ruth was the great-grandmother of David and that Ruth was from Moab. She was a Moabite. David had some Moabite blood running through his veins and his parents' grandmother was actually Ruth. And you couldn't help then but to also connect Naomi going through an incredibly trying period in her life. If you read the book of Ruth, you know that Naomi went through a, an incredibly difficult time in her life. But that difficult time led to this moment right here. Because of one daughter-in-law's faithfulness, we see almost a perfect backdrop to David's appeal for his parents. While there is no way Naomi could have known that her trials would lead to salvation to even generations later, this here, when you read this, it's too coincidental to be a coincidence. There's a fascinating story that occurred in 1938 where the Nazis were taking over more and more territory they were doing more and more horrific acts right before war was declared on Germany and launching World War II in 1939. If you ever saw the movie The Sound of Music, it's around that time. In 1938, there was a Polish flyer. His name was Roman Tursky, and he was returning home from France. And his plane developed engine trouble and he had to land for repairs because of the engine trouble, but he had to land in Vienna. And if you saw The Sound of Music, you know Vienna was taken over and Nazified, right, during that time, but it was Nazified Vienna. The next morning, Tursky would go out of his hotel and he wanted to buy some souvenirs to go back before getting on his plane. And while he was going back to his plane, there was a man who would run through the door slamming into Roman Tursky, and before Tursky could respond, like what in the, before he could even say anything, the man would yell, Gestapo, Gestapo. So Tursky, hearing this, would rush him up the lobby into his own room, and he would arrange this man into his bed and put covers over him, and because he was a very skinny man, Tursky remembers and recalls he's a very skinny and slender man, he was able to just put blankets over him. And then what he did was he made himself look like he just gotten up. I guess he gave himself bed hair, like he you know, scruffed up his shirt a little bit, and so Tursky made himself look like he just gotten up. And then the Gestapo came, and they started shouting questions at Tursky. They asked for his passport. They asked for his ID. They gave him all these questions. And then they left without searching the room, actually. So <clears throat> after the Gestapo leaves, Tursky goes back into his room. And then he shows the person he had hid 
a map. This is his flight map. They didn't speak the same language. They, couldn't, they didn't understand one another, but because he was on a plane, he saw that this man was running for his life. You know, he show, showed him his flight map, and they started communicating with gestures. And then he kept on pointing, his guest kept on pointing to Warsaw. He's like, no, no, no. There's no time to go to Warsaw. I can't take you to Warsaw. He's saying no to Warsaw, right? He had to land for fuel in Krakow, right? And he started, so uh, Tursky started even drawing like prison bars on the map saying, if you go to any of these airports, they are going to arrest you because he knew that Nazis controlled almost every airport that they would, that he would land in. So he would draw like these uh, prison bars. And then so he would point to some meadow, just some field, right over the Polish border. And then he would land there, and from then on, that passenger would be on his own. And that's exactly what Tursky did. He flew over the Polish border, landed in some meadow, and he was off. When uh, Tursky landed at Krakow, because that's where he was headed, uh, the police searched his plane. They'd been told that they found out somehow that he'd assisted a man to escape from Vienna. And they found nothing in his plane, so they had to release Tursky. And so he was curious. Roman Tursky was curious. He's like, why was this man wanted? Why did you search my plane? And they told him it's because he was a Jew. So Tursky then served as a fighter pilot in the Polish Air Force after that. And after Poland's defeat, he crossed over with other of his... Um, military friends, his Air Force friends, over to Romania. Uh, they were caught and sent to concentration uh, camps, but Tursky managed to escape, and he joined the French Air Force. And after France's fall, he went to England and fought in the Battle of Britain. In one of his missions, Tursky would ram a German plane, and some of the scrap metal from that collision would go into his face or his head and he couldn't see because he had blood running down his eyes so he was blinded by the blood uh, he became unconscious he finds out later it's because his skull was fractured and the chief surgeon at the hospital nearby looked at Tursky said this is it's useless to operate there's no way when he awoke, he saw this very slender face looking down on him, and the fellow in the white smock would go to him, and he would go, remember me? You saved my life in Vienna. And Tursky remembered his face, and then he asked what happened. The fugitive pa passenger, he eventually got to Warsaw, but before the war, he escaped to Scotland, and when he heard there was a Polish squadron that had disguised itself in the Battle of Britain, he thought Tursky might be in it. So he wrote to inquire who's in this squadron. And he knew Tursky's name because he had, Tursky had written his name on the margin of the map that they, were, they had communicated before. And so the day before, he had read of a Polish hero shooting down five enemy planes and crash landing near a certain hospital. And so, and then that piece, that news piece said that the flyer's condition seemed hopeless. And so he asked the Royal Air Force, the British Air Force in Edinburgh, to fly him to that hospital. 
And Tursky asked him, why? Why'd you do all this? And this is what he answered. I thought that at last I could do something to show my gratitude. You see, I'm a brain surgeon, and I operated you on you this morning. Who could have known that a person he saved would end up being his savior? And while this story was during just the span of a few years, God's plan we see here was in the scope of a hundred. All this had taken place, and now it proved to be a source of relief for David in his desperate time. This is not something that David could have done, that David did on his own. This was set up long before even David was born, and it was predestined for his benefit. You see, what David received was a gift. There was absolutely nothing David could have done to deserve it because he wasn't even born yet. And yet this was prepared to him because of God's mercy. If there is a running theme through these three times of desperation for David, it is that even though these times were incredibly desperate times, God's providence and mercy proved to be greater. What does this mean? It means that during desperate times, God upholds his people. He does not leave them alone and in a continued state of desperation. God saves his people. All three times we see how David was given provision, preservation, and protection. Through each of these scenarios, whether it's the priest's bread or the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to write the Psalms, or the protection for generations, David is witnessing God's salvation. And God's salvation is pointing us to God's ultimate salvation. We, as people of God, have in Christ Jesus. You know, it doesn't look like much. Not like what we would expect. Five loaves of priest bread getting kicked out of Gath, Moabite ancestry. But if you know David, you knew that he knew quality, right? He looked at Goliath's sword, and he would say this of Goliath's sword, there is none like that. David knows quality, but he continues to witness God's salvation again and again, and how for every desperate situation, God's salvation is unique but it is perfect. And by the time we get to 2 Samuel chapter 7, this is David's prayer in verses 21 and 22. Because of your promise and according to your own heart, you have brought about all this greatness to make your servant know it. Therefore you are great, O Lord God, for there is None like you, and there is no God besides you, according to all that we have heard with our ears. Jesus also, like David, had no place to rest his head, like he said in Matthew 8:20, foxes have holes and birds have air, have birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. But the Son of Man, even though people saw him in his humble state, the Son of Man was the divine king the king of salvation, come to us generations past to give us ultimately salvation from our sins. 
In our desperate times, we see that the Lord God is a God who saves his people mightily, uniquely, and perfectly. Therefore, we can confidently say, In God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? There is one final point, and that's in verse 5. In verse 5, it just seems like some random insertion, but I assure you it is not. In verse 5, one final point is made in this passage, and it says, The prophet Gad said to David, Do not remain in the stronghold. Depart and go into the land of Judah. So David departed and went into the forest of Hereth. This is the point. God gives David instruction. You know, some people say, oh, you're so Bible-focused. Bible this, Bible that. Too much Bible. However, what we see here is through David's desperate times, David not only sees God's salvation, but he receives God's instruction. That is something that Saul did not have. Saul did not have God's instruction, and that drove him to do some wild things, like making rash vows to calling someone that was from the disgraced lineage of Eli. And when God's instruction left Saul, Saul's desperation was never alleviated. He was left meandering. But in contrast, we see that instruction follows the servant of God. God's instruction then isn't a killjoy like a lot of people might have you believe. God's instruction is a blessing. It is a privilege. Saul had no light to shine in his misery, but instruction and guidance followed David. And so it is with the people of God. The instruction of God follows and is a lamp to our feet, lights the path that we walk on. Praise be to God. And so we praise God for his instruction. It doesn't leave us. It's in the word. How glorious is that for his people, that we are never alone in desperate times. God saves us uniquely and perfectly, and he gives us his instruction. His word never departs from us. What a glorious God we serve. That's why David was able to say in 2 Samuel 7, There is none like this God. There is none like you, God. And that's our praise to him. Let's praise him for his instruction and for his salvation, the salvation we have in Jesus Christ. Let's pray.